Hello, and welcome to The Francis Effect. This is not during our regular season. We are here just because it's summertime and the weather is beautiful outside. It's about 75 degrees. The wind is gently blowing the trees. And it's been many weeks since Dan and I have had a chance to catch up. And so we wanted to just do this as a kind of love letter to our listeners to say thank you for sticking with us while we're on break and to talk about a lot of the just crazy stuff that has been happening over the past several weeks. First of all, Dan, it's great to see you. Hello. Hey, David. Good to see you, too. We can consider this something like a a Midsummer's Night podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll make sure to drop it in the evening so that it actually rings out as a Midsummer's Night podcast or a Midsummer Night's podcast or whatever Shakespearean reference. Yeah, Shakespeare's you're... rolling around in his grave. Hopefully not much ado about nothing. Um, ooh, ooh, you're taming this shrew. Oh, yes. So you have been traveling up a storm. Where have you been and what have you been doing? I've been in many places. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some of our listeners who are theologians or theologically inclined know that June, end of May through the end of June is is typically theology conference season. So all of the major, at least in the Catholic world, major Catholic theological organizations of, of professionals, theologians, teachers, educators, usually meet at that time. So I've been on the road for that for a number of conferences, and then I was on the other side of the globe. I was going to say you I went down forgot. under, didn't you? That's true. I was in New Zealand for about a week, and I had the great privilege of being invited to give a keynote address at the New Zealand Catholic Education Conference, which was wonderful. It was my first time in New Zealand. And hopefully not the last. The people are fantastic. It is, of course, though, summer here in Chicago, winter down under. So it it wasn't super nice. It was a little dreary and and rainy on on a few days, but even their winter is pretty mild compared to Chicago's. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough about the people, about the community, about the country. There's a lot I could say about that, and and maybe I will at another time. Uh, I don't want to take all the time talking about it, but if anybody ever has the opportunity to go... It's definitely worth it. Sadly, I wasn't able to explore the country very much due to the the quick turnaround. So I didn't see, you know, all the sights of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, though that is a big thing for, for tourists. They really encourage that. So... And were you there long enough to acquire a bad case of jet lag that you then had to get over? Or were you there a short enough time that you kind of came back and felt normal? Yeah, at the risk of instigating my uh, Irish superstitious side, I will say something that I hope remains true, which is, at least up to now, I've been pretty good as a traveler. And it's one of the things that the kind of amount of travel that I do and the various time zones that I'm constantly flipping through, jet lag doesn't have a typically a long lasting effect on me. So though it was about 24 hours of travel in the loss of two days getting to New Zealand, I adjusted pretty quickly onto their time zone. When I came back, likewise, you have a lot of time to adjust, and it didn't really affect me at first. A few days after I got back here to the States, back to Chicago, I had a little bit of difficulty going to sleep at night one of the nights. But I would say within two days or so, I was I was back to normal. So. Holy Spirit, man. You're, yeah. You have the anointing upon you for no <laughs> jet lag, and we'll knock wood that— uh, that we have not just cursed you. With That's that. right. Well, it's, I think it fits with, uh, you know, the Franciscan calling. We're called to be itinerant, you mm-hmm. know, on the move, never, you know, static. Uh, the joke always that I like to tell with, you know, the monastic communities is they take a fourth vow of stability. They stay in one place. And as a Franciscan, we, we take a fourth vow of instability. We're unstable people. So, so yeah, it, it's fitting. Yeah. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm doing good, but there's one last thing I want to ask oh, you yeah, about. Yeah. You, 
you also finished a manuscript. Do I have that right? Oh, at that's the beginning true. of the summer? Yeah. So yeah. what is that? Yeah, it was it was a quick turnaround. It's a manuscript that uh, wasn't on my plate the last time we spoke. As these things happen, our listeners might know, and we've talked a little bit about it at the end of the last season, about Pope Francis's new apostolic exhortation, Rejoice and Be Glad, about Christian holiness. So one of our, as it happens, one of our sponsors over the last year, uh, Liturgical Press, they have a series that accompany the various papal documents, at least the, the documents of Pope Francis. So they've had in the past theologians or ethicists write a small kind of commentary study guide sort of thing that can be used individually or as group uh, with groups that provides background, additional information, clarification, reflection questions, these sorts of things. And so they have two volumes out already. One is Laudato Si, the other one is on Amoris Laetitia. And so I wrote the one on on this new document on, on Christian holiness. The reason why it wasn't on the horizon, why we hadn't talked about it on the podcast or anything before, is that basically our last episode came right after the document came out and this had sort of transpired in the months since. But yeah, that was a quick... That was one of the things I did in my travels to New Zealand and back was work on this little book. And it is a little book. It's it's, it's right around 100 pages, maybe less than that. But uh, it should be out in the new year. For those who aren't as familiar with book publishing, the way this stuff works is even though the manuscript is completely done and turned in, it's a long process of editing and copy editing and layout and design and printing. And I mean, you know how this works. Um, but for our listeners who are like, oh, if it's done, when is it going to come out? It'll, it'll come out probably you know, in January or February. Okay. Well, well, we'll take a look for that when it does, and I'm looking forward to reading it. You asked how I was doing. I'm doing well. Summer is a strange time for my family in Chicago because we have a, a close relationship with my wife's parents, and that means that for several weeks every summer, our kids, our six-year-old and our, our eight-year-old, go and they stay in Pittsburgh with my parents-in-law and with Curious parents. And that's a joyous time for everyone, but it's also bittersweet because even though it's nice to have focused time with Kira and me, it's also very sad to be apart from them. Yeah. This year is a little different because in sort of a long arc, uh, those parents from Pittsburgh, Kira's parents, have just bought a house here in Hyde Park. And so over the next year, they'll be moving to Hyde Park. And so that dynamic will be changing and they'll be much more close and accessible. But that's been a very exciting time for us. But it's also been everybody kind of deals with the change that happens in summer. But now there's added change of the entire dynamic that the kids have grown up with will be sort of shifting over the next 12 to 15 months. And so thinking about that, thinking about helping the kids to talk about the change and what makes them anxious and also kind of what they're excited about has been fun for us as parents. And also it's been helpful for us as parents to see this kind of through their eyes because as adults you can make some decisions that, you know, have emotions attached to them but are not necessarily flavored by emotion. And for young people, it's mostly emotion and then the rationality comes later. And so seeing it through that perspective has helped us to reckon with some of our own emotions and fears about the change as well. Because we've been living in the same place in Hyde Park for five years and we've gotten very attached to that rhythm. And to leave that rhythm for something else, it's, it's, it's fun, it's, it's exciting, but it's also a little scary. Yeah, yeah, a lot of change on the horizon. Well, yeah, and and that's good. And, you know, for me, I, I've been working on a lot of new projects with some new clients, and so had a very good meeting last weekend on a trip down to Cincinnati. There's a really good organization down there called The Hive that does kind of interfaith spirituality work. It's sort of a retreat center. 
And the fellow that runs it, uh, Troy Bronsink, has been a friend of mine for over 20 years. He and I were in seminary together and kind of watching his trajectory going from being sort of a, a more traditional pastor to this kind of endeavor has been a lot of fun. And so it looks like my my company, Sandberg Media, might be doing some work with The Hive in the near future. Also, things are progressing really well with Commonweal on their podcast. I'm very proud of how they've stepped up to the plate. And really, it's difficult to go from a print culture mindset where you're producing a magazine regularly and and you do copy editing and everything to the much more kind of fluid nature of audio production. And they've really been amazing to work with over the past several months to just watch them as they've embraced this new way of thinking and the possibilities that are there. And things continue to go well with Lisa Sharon Harper and her organization, Freedom Road. If our listeners haven't had a chance to check out that podcast, the Freedom Road podcast, I'm not a a voice on it. I just produce it. But my goodness, in terms of important conversations that are happening right now around dynamic intersectional issues of race and religion and culture, that's really been just eye-opening for me to be a listener and an editor on that show because I have been exposed to some amazing civil rights leaders and to some voices that, as a white male, I don't always have first on my radar. I've been very thankful for that. And I think that uh, listeners who enjoy what we talk about on this show would enjoy that show as well. It's not a Catholic show. It's an evangelical show. But the kind of gospel-centeredness and the commitment to justice kind of rings through at every every episode. And beyond that, I just continue to write every day. And that's been a lot of fun, too. Yeah, you've been uh, with your social media updates. Uh, people can get a moment to moment word count. I feel like that paperclip from Microsoft Word, which is very exciting. It's, it's great to see. I've got a philosophy that anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And at any time that you can, you should always learn in public. And so for me and for listeners who maybe don't know, I'm, I'm under contract with Yale University Press to produce a book that is looking at the way in which commodification of the Bible has been affecting the way people have used the Bible, particularly in America, for the past 25 years. It's called The Accessorized Bible. And I've been needing to get this book done for a number of years, and Yale has been very patient. And finally, they said, come on, Daltz, you've got a timeline, and here's the drop-dead deadline. And so in order to meet that deadline, I set myself a pretty ambitious word count of a 1,000 drafted words a day, and to do that for basically two months straight to get to a draft of 60,000 words. And in order to really hold myself accountable to that, I have some accountability partners who are wonderful, some folks on the West Coast that I've known for a long time that are also writing books. But also I just decided to put the word count every day on Facebook. And so every day there's whatever words I've written specifically to that project to date up against the 60,000 that need to be there for the project in draft form. And right now we're just north of 17,000 words, and that'll continue 1,000-plus words a day. They're not good words, but, you know, they're words, and you got to do that crappy first draft, as Anne Lamont says. Oh, it's so true. I mean, I remember when I was in, in college, you know, in, in, I think we've talked about this before. In addition to theology, I studied journalism, and one of my professors liked to quote somebody whom I don't recall. It's uh, some other author, some journalist, some professor of journalism, something like this. And it may just be one of these aphorisms that's been circulating forever. But the line was, there's no such thing as good writing, just good rewriting. Mm -hmm. And, And I think there's real truth in that. I mean, you have to put something on the page. It doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, it, it won't be, (laughs) you know, there are very few people who can just kind of think through something, put it out there and it'd be 
basically fine without typos. That's that's so unusual. I am interested too. I mean, maybe it's worthwhile just chatting for for our listeners who uh, either are writers or aspiring writers or just curious about the process. One thing that's always interesting to me is how diverse people's processes are. And so, you know, one of the things in terms of holding yourself accountable that you've engaged in is this posting publicly, Mm -hmm. you know, did you meet your word count today? Is this, you know, what's the kind of overall progress? Do you, you talked about setting a daily goal of a thousand words. Is there a time attached to that? Do you have to find yourself blocking off a certain amount of time? Is it, okay, if today I can write a thousand words in 30 minutes, then I'm, then, and I feel good about that and I'm done. Or is it, you know, how does that work? Because I know some people say like, all right, I need to work two hours a day. I need to clear that off. And, you know, maybe the, the role, the road to accountability there is, do I spend the time, you know, do I grapple with the silence, grapple with the project? Because sometimes that's the hardest thing. It's not, you know, when people talk about writing, it's very little actual writing takes place, especially in the academic realm. You're always doing research, you're thinking, you're, you're reading, you're kind of, you know, doing a bunch of stuff. How does that work for you? You want me to talk about my process? If you want. I, I'm, I'm happy to. It's going to take me about four minutes. Is that, is that okay? That's fine by me. We've got <laughs> one minute and 45 seconds. So you, you take four minutes. I'll take one more minute to give a shout out at the end. But So uh, let me take two steps back. I had crippling writer's block for about seven years, starting with the death of my mother in 2009. And so I had lost the ability to write even longhand for a number of years. It's part of the reason why I left academia and started doing radio. And so getting back to writing, it's not ever something that I didn't want to do. It's always something that I wanted to do, but I didn't have the physical capacity to do. I've, I've mentioned to at other times on other shows that it's like having your arm chopped off and you want to pick up the coffee cup. You can remember drinking the coffee, but you can't physically get to the coffee. So when the writing came back, basically last September, I have lost no time and I have enjoyed writing every day. And that's the key that I think is paramount for all of this. Writing is something I do, not something I have to do. Hmm. And keeping that balance to where I never beat myself up for not writing, but I really enjoy the process of writing and keeping it in that space of just part of who I am is a writer. And part of how I define myself is a radio producer and a writer. And so I know that every day I'm going to be involved in that process. I'm also lucky that my kids go to bed at around 8, and my wife usually is asleep by about 10. And so from 10 to midnight, I've got those two hours to focus And then I can go to bed between midnight and one, and then I can function pretty much the next day. So that's largely when the writing gets done. So you're a night writer. Well, yeah. That's confused with a night writer. (laughs) The other piece that has helped me is uh, my wife, Kira, who also was a professional writer for a number of years, turned me on to a website called 750words.com, which takes the idea from the artist's way. And if you're not familiar with that book, it's a wonderful book. But the artist's way basically says that you need to get into the habit of what they call morning pages, which is basically 750 words on any subject that just gets written kind of stream of consciousness. I've kind of split the middle. So I I do my 750 words, not in the morning, usually in the evening. But I allowed myself for a long time to just write whatever to get the muscle back. But I was doing it every day. And 750words.com is great because it gives you little badges and little prompts along the way. And it keeps a word count for you, both a running count and a daily count. And if you fall off the wagon and you stop writing, it kind of gives you a little nudge that's like, oh, well, your streak is broken and that feels bad. So all those 
simple kindergarten tricks helped me when I was starting to get back into writing to reinforce the daily process. And so now I really, I really covet and love that time. And what I've discovered is that, you know, I can focus the writing over several days now on a particular subject. It doesn't have to be random noise. It can now be focused. And so a lot of the past year has literally been you mentioned when we first sat down today that you spent this morning before we got together doing training for a marathon, and today was your speed day. Mm-hmm. I did a similar sort of thing with writing where I, I would basically task myself with writing a short story or with writing an extended you know set of reflections on subject X. And so for the next five days, I'm going to do that. And so I built up the strength of being able to kind of focus on a subject and get stuff and that also helped me to learn that you can't write about a big subject in one sitting. No. You have to kind of take it in chunks. And to learn that as well, that's a lesson that I never learned when I was writing my dissertation. And so now it's a very – I'm a much better writer now than I was when I was a doctoral student because of having lost it for six or seven years. I'm, yeah. I'm thankful for that time because now it has allowed me to to get back to a point where I enjoy it and it's productive and it's, and it's kind of fire hose in its intensity now, which is great. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's it's sort of the silver lining. Unfortunately, all those years where you felt frustrated having lost that ability, I'm glad it's back. But um, the last comment about being a better writer than you were when you were a grad student, a doctoral student, it's just interesting that just last evening I was talking to a friend, a fellow academic, another theology professor, who was talking about somebody else's work that she had heard presented at a conference this past year. And the conversation kind of led to this, well, it was an interesting paper, interesting enough, but it was a very kind of grad student-y kind of paper. And I think there is a certain way when you're, when you're starting out in, in academic work and starting out in research where you're finding your voice, you're, you, know, you kind of get into these stilted ways of, of writing or, or you're kind of mimicking somebody else, you know, a mentor or, or something like this that, you know, everybody kind of has to grow into their own voice. And that does take time that, that you know, it's a process. Um, I like the idea of giving yourselves a, giving yourself an assignment too. Um, what, what is your writing process like? It's varied over the years. It, it, yeah, it very, very much so. Over the last maybe six or seven years, I've been incredibly busy. I've been on the road a lot. And I have found that that's, it doesn't impede certain aspects of academic work and ministry like teaching. You know, you can prepare lectures, you can read, you can grade from pretty much anywhere, from an airplane in an airport or on a bus or in a hotel room or on a retreat center, wherever it may be. Especially now that so much is electronic, if, if people submit their assignments electronically, that kind of thing is is easy enough to engage some of the more general audience stuff over the years. You know, I was a columnist for four years at America Magazine. Um, I write regularly for Give Us This Day, liturgical presses, you know, sort of daily uh, devotional and, and kind of missalette. And other shorter projects like that for a popular audience, I could also do in these little fits and spurts along the way. What I had found, though, is that the more I was on the road giving academic lectures, giving uh, popular talks or, or workshops or retreats, the more that impeded my ability to do the longer term sustained research that I hadn't, yeah, that I, that I had kind of slipped away from uh, in recent years. It's not to say that the stuff that I was doing was bad. It's just it's a different kind of process. So years and years ago, before I was on the road as much as I have been in recent years, I would be kind of like you, a night writer, not nearly that late. I've never been that kind of night owl, but 
Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. when I was working on my master's degrees um, and, and in formation with the friars preparing for ordination. And I would do my work and reading for class and writing for class during the day. We would have mass, dinner, and evening prayer that would end about 7 o'clock each night. And from about 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock at night, those two hours, not unlike your two hours, you know, from, from 10 to 12 or something like that, were times that I could use, that was space that I could use to do research work of my own. And so I worked on academic articles. I, I, you know, worked on other projects. But as life has it, things change. The busier I get, the harder that is to do. The last few years, there have been these times where I basically use the time that I have and get things done. And so, um, you know, a, a fellow friar once once said about me to me that his perception. This is this is the artist Robert Lentz, the iconographer, and it's always stayed with me because sometimes it takes somebody outside yourself, you know, to to show something to you. We were a part of a conversation, and somebody had made the comment, you know, you know, Dan, how do you do as much as you do, you know, with all this traveling, with all the speaking, with all the you know ministry, and at the same time writing. And Robert kind of interrupted and said he thought that it had to do with the way that my brain worked, that it works at a different speed on different projects at different times. And he said, he said this is from the perspective of an artist, that as somebody who draws icons uh, as, a, as a painter and so forth, as, as a creative person, everybody works differently and at different seasons and at different paces and this kind of thing. And so that's always stayed with me, too, that I, I think certain projects, I have a sense of myself that I don't necessarily – need a whole lot of time. I know how much time I need to do this kind of thing. And so if I don't have the luxury of creating the space or if I'm really busy a certain time of year or something, then I'm able to, to kind of plan out these little pockets of time here and there. One of the nice things about this summer is that I'm more kind of stable, to go back to that Benedict and Franciscan kind of divide, uh, more stable than I have been. And, and that's been deliberate. I've been trying to create space and will continue to do so in the future, particularly around July and August, where I can work on these longer term projects. And so I've got two major research projects, you know, two essentially books that I'm working on this summer. Uh, one I hope to have finished by the fall. The other one's a little bit of a longer term project. But the only way to be able to get that kind of stuff done is is to sit still and be in one place. I've got an odd question. Do you find that the rhythm of the daily office helps with the writing? I mean, because for listeners who are unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, you take breaks during the day with attention to prayer. That's just part of your life and formation as a Franciscan. And so, you know, at noon, uh, in the evening, in the morning, you'll pause and you'll take 20 minutes or so and you'll engage either alone or in a group in some prayer. Does that help with the writing process? It does. I mean, just a just follow-up comment on that, too. I mean, as, as part of a mendicant order, our communal prayer is centered on morning and evening. Um, so unlike the monastic communities that pray six to seven times a day, they do pray the three minor offices in the middle of the day. They'll pray together vigils early, early, early in the morning. They'll do morning prayer. They'll do evening prayer. And then they'll pray Compline, which is night prayer at the end of the day. So most mendicant communities, most apostolic communities like the Jesuits, what we would do communally is pray morning prayer and evening prayer together and occasionally night prayer together as well. And yeah, I think I think it does. I mean, again, this is really more monastic than it is mendicant. I mean, Francis of Assisi, Dominic, and others, um, the founders of the Servites and the Carmelites and so forth, their vision was one where 
the day would begin and end with prayer kind of bookends and that there would be this going out into the world. You know, that's the whole idea is that we're not monks who stay in one place. We're not cloistered. The ministry is out with the people of God uh, where they happen to be, where they find themselves. So you would begin with prayer. You'd go out into the world to serve, to work, to minister. You'd come back at the end of the day. You would you'd share a meal together. You'd close the day with prayer. And so that does have a certain kind of rhythm. And, and that, yeah, that, that does kind of pattern one's life, one's way of thinking. I think when I was in formation in Washington, as I mentioned earlier, that was very, very evident to me. You know, the, the, the rhythm was very, very clear. I'd get up in the morning, the day would begin with prayer, go off to school, work in the library, work at home, work at school, come back. You know, that day would sort of be closed with mass, dinner, evening prayer. And then, you know, it allowed for a natural transition into the other work I was going to do before I, you know, called it a night. And that goes back. I mean, it's the wisdom of the Benedictine uh, aphorism of ora et labora. You know, it's a balanced life of work and prayer, work and prayer. And so there's something to that. Um, absolutely. So one last thing before we take a break to finish up or wrap up our check-in, I just want to give a shout out to listeners of the show. First of all, all of those who I've encountered over the last few months, including overseas, folks have been very, very supportive of the program. And I haven't kept a a running list of everybody's name, um, but I do appreciate and David, too, appreciates hearing the feedback, hearing the laments about when are you coming back on, when are you coming back on? So here's one kind of, uh, again, uh, midsummer sample. We'll we'll try to get another one in August for you, and then the regular season will return in, in the fall. But a special shout out to very good friends of mine, the Neller family, who are also Patreon supporters. I just came back from uh, spending the weekend uh, with them, a wonderful family. Andrew and and Sarah have been friends of mine since uh, freshman year of college. Andrew was my roommate and therefore has earned his place in heaven for all four years that we were in college (laughs) together. So truly another brother uh, from a, a brother from another mother, as they say. But I wanted to give them a shout out because they listen and and, uh, and, and as so many others do, uh, really appreciate the, the program, and we really appreciate you guys, so thank you. Yeah, thank you always for listening, and uh, you're listening right now to The Francis Effect. We're on a bit of a weird show clock today because it's summertime, and so it's not our normal sort of 20-minute segments tightly edited towards various subjects. Instead, we're allowing ourselves to be a little free and loose because it's summer. We're letting our, we're letting our hair down. I have no hair. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. This is Dan Horan, and I'm here, as always, with the illustrious David Dalt. Every couple weeks, typically during the year, we get together to talk about matters of culture, uh, politics, the world around us, random things that come to our mind as it happens, uh, all informed by our Catholic faith. So we are, as David has mentioned already in the show, on our summer break. This is something of a bonus round. Uh, It's not part of the regular season, and so we've taken the liberty of being a little bit more free with our format. And so we're going to do something of a kind of running list of things that have happened in recent weeks and months, 
things that are very pressing, some of them very dire and upsetting, and yet things that call us to reflect from a faith position about how to respond, what to do, how to feel, how to think about these things. So just to give you a, a quick overview, we're going to look at what's been going on with migrant and refugee children at the uh, southern border of the United States and the U.S. policies around that. We're going to take a look at this question of religious support for politicians. In particular, when I say religious, we mean people like me, uh, a Franciscan friar, uh, men and women religious, diocesan priests, those who are in leadership positions within the church. And then finally, as we're recording this, President Trump uh, has just wrapped up a European visit that has been, as you already know, interesting. Interesting is the most polite word I can come up with. So let's begin first with this topic of, uh, or the subject rather, of, of children, migrant children at the borders being separated from their parents. This arose within the last month or so, month and a half, as a result of Attorney General Jeff Sessions' imposition of what has been referred to as a zero-tolerance policy. It has been no secret that the Trump administration has tried to think of ways to deter women and men and families from migrating to the United States. It's oftentimes referred to as illegal immigration. But what's really going on here is, you know, an increase of folks who are coming to our southern border, who are coming through Mexico and other parts of Central and North America, because they're fleeing dangerous situations of violence, political instability, things that risk personal harm. And one of the, the outcomes, one of the latest sort of tactics, uh, which is incredibly cruel and and uh, unusual to use the constitutional language is that the current presidential administration has been separating children from their parents uh, in many cases with no plans in place to reconnect them. Well, one of the things that you've talked about and we've discussed on earlier episodes of this show is that when we talk about them fleeing circumstances south of the border, those are circumstances that a lot of times have been caused either indirectly or in many cases directly by the actions of our government. And so if we look over the broad sweep of 40 years with the School of the Americas, and now it's, it goes by a different name, but near where Win I... WINSEC is the WINSEC, acronym. Down near where I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, we either were sending soldiers into South and Central American countries to destabilize governments, either with covert operations or with direct actions, or we were importing leaders of various militaries from those governments, oftentimes right-wing governments, and we were training them in tactics and operations of how to basically create terror. Think about the disappearances that happened in Nicaragua and El Salvador. If you think about the slaughter of religious that have occurred in many countries, these oftentimes can be traced back, sometimes directly, to the actions of the U.S. government. And so we're, when these weary souls are coming to our borders on the south you know, along the, the the southern part of the United States, they're coming here largely because of problems that we have caused for them or life-threatening situations that have come about because we have made it a hostile environment oftentimes for progressive politics in a number of countries south of our border. That's right. I mean, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. One thinks of what was going on in the 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s. You mentioned you made allusions to El Salvador, but that was not the only country in which the effects of the Cold War led U.S. presidential administrations to take executive actions, oftentimes covertly, as well as instruct our intelligence community, the CIA and others, to get involved, not just with, you know, there's certain, there's certain uh, 
irony here, of course, given the foreign meddling in our 2016 election. But uh, yeah, not just to meddle in a, in a foreign nation's election, but sometimes to aid and bet and, and arm rebel groups to overthrow duly elected governments that were perceived as hospitable to or even adapting certain communist or Marxist ideology. And that has led to instability and poverty that continues to shake out in such a way that that these countries are very hostile, very dangerous for a lot of folks. I'm reminded again, you know, kind of shifting gears a little bit to talk about all right, well, what does a Catholic Christian have to say or think about with regard to this? And, and I, I always go back to the confidior that, that we pray together our, uh, every time we gather for Sunday Eucharist, that we acknowledge what we have done and what we have failed to do. And I think there is something deeply embedded in our American kind of culture, our ethos, our, our society, that we never admit our failures. We never admit when we've done something wrong, when we've made a mistake. You know, the truth is history and kind of perspective is always 2020 in hindsight, and we can look back and, and one could even extend perhaps to these previous U.S. governments and administrations uh, that have engaged in, in this kind of destabilizing practices in Central and South America. We might even be able to look back and say, okay, based on the knowledge, based on their intentions at the time, these were well-intentioned efforts, even though they were mistakes, even though they were probably wrong, even at the time. One could think about those who are making these decisions as being people of goodwill or intending to be. Nevertheless, now is the time to atone for and to respond to the, the effects, um, to, to acknowledge that what, what we had done was wrong. And, and I, I just don't ever see that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about that is people who are coming to our borders, this gets confused sometimes. So there are individuals who will attempt to cross the southern American border in secret. And those people are considered illegal immigrants in one sense. There are also much larger number of people who come here on travel visas and simply overstay the visas. They are also illegal immigrants, and they come from all countries, not just from south of the border. There are also a class of people that come fleeing for their lives or for the safety of their children and are coming to our borders and are presenting themselves at our borders as asylum seekers. And the problem, one of the problems of the last seven weeks or so is that the policies of the government that are being enacted right now collapse together those that are legitimately coming to our borders seeking asylum with those that are crossing illegally and is making it seem as if everyone that approaches our border is somehow a miscreant or has somehow, because they've merely come to our border, has de facto broken the law. And that has led to a lot of asylum seekers, people who are fleeing conditions that we as citizens of the United States are in many ways responsible, we are now also separating those families, jailing them, and putting children in cages. And there's a lot of complexity to that, but the simple fact is it comes down to a category error of mislabeling asylum seekers as illegals. Well, I think it's, I, I, yeah, I think that's generally right at the surface, but I think it goes deeper than that. Go ahead. I think that what this is kind of symptomatic of is is a deeper exercise of institutional racism, Mm -hmm. that what we see is, and there's been no secret around President Trump's advisors, people like Stephen Miller or even Attorney General Jeff Sessions. These are people who have been very publicly advocating for restrictions on immigration, legal immigration. In other words, those people who wait their turn and go through the process and stuff based on country of origin, essentially based on race. And so if you're a brown person, if you're a person of color, these are folks who 
have no interest in having you come here. And then you bring up a very good point about asylum seekers. These are not folks who, well, let me just put it this way. I, I, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. I mean, it's, it's a call as people of faith. There's a basic fundamental human call to empathy, which is think about it for yourself, you know, as, as a listener, what would it take for you to leave everything you have behind to take your kids, if you're parents, you have children, especially young children, and then just leave, just start walking, just, you know, seek these dangerous paths. People don't do this arbitrarily. They're doing this because the circumstances at home, the circumstances in their communities and in their na- their home nations are so dire, are so violent, are so dangerous. They have no other choice, no other choice. And instead of being people of hospitality, people of welcome, people who live up to the scriptural admonitions of welcoming the stranger, the alien, the orphan, the widow, uh, you know, we, we as a quote-unquote self-described Christian nation, which we are not, um, but for those who like to tout that line, we're doing anything but exercising uh, our Christian faith in action. Starting about eight or nine years ago, I started seeing full-page ads in magazines like Harper's with a kind of soft rhetoric around this idea that somehow there were enough immigrants in the United States and we needed to stop thinking about having open borders and we needed to just have U.S. for U.S. citizens. And I'm not paraphrasing too far off the mark of what these advertisements said. It was couched in very reasonable sounding language and high economic terms. But you're right that going up to the highest levels of government, there's an institutional racism, a thought that somehow these people are either an economic threat or more just an existential threat. And let's name it. It's an existential threat to the whiteness of America. No, that's right. It's, 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 it's in the face of the, as it's been called at times, the browning of, of the U.S. population. President Trump some months ago, you know, let it slip in a meeting about these, quote, and cover your ears, people, shithole countries. You know, that's the president for you. And in, in saying, well, don't we want more people coming from these Scandinavian countries? I can't remember which of the small, predominantly white Scandinavian countries he was referring to. I, I don't recall now. But, yeah, I think you're right. When, when these advertisements and these folks in political office or think tanks and so forth are making these claims, it's, it's a you know U.S. citizen for us. This kind of language is couched white supremacist language. Well, and let's also just raise up something that was said from one of the, the official podiums of the United States government when Jeff Sessions quoted Romans 13. Oh, and let, so misquoted. Yeah, by the way. Yeah. Well, but he, I mean, let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed, and those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves. Okay, so this was stated and repeated as a justification for what is happening because these are miscreants, they have violated the law, and by violating the law, they violated God. But if he had just read a few verses below, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. This is also from Romans 13. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no evil to the neighbor. Hence, 
love is the fulfillment of the law. And if we ask who the neighbor is, Jesus gives us an answer. It's the one that you're not supposed to like because your culture has rejected them. Yeah, you bring up some very good points. Just one additional point on that. I mean, Romans 13, that passage, the selected verses that Sessions referenced were also verses that were used to justify enslaving human beings Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the U.S. for centuries. So, Proof texting is a horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> and so uh, as, as scholars, you and I know uh, are both very much against this and our listeners should be too. Uh, you, you can't just lift up verses here or there without understanding their context, their history, uh, including their uh, interpretive and applicative history. So there's so much more that, that can be said about this. I think yeah. we should switch gears in, in the spirit of, of time. And before we do this, there's one last thing to say in, in terms of context and history. This problem did not begin with the Trump administration. This is a problem that goes back through the Obama administration, through the Bush administration. We have not had a good policy on immigration for a long time. Now, right now, it's particularly visible and incredibly harsh and needs to be called out. But let's not give a pass to the others that came before. This is a long-standing build, and the forces that are now very operative have had a lot of room to maneuver in the darkness. Well, that's true. I, I, I would just qualify that, though, and say that we're, we've reached a categorical difference. Absolutely. So what we've seen in the 90s with, with Clinton, with with uh, George W. Bush, with uh, President Obama, you're right. The, the, there have been problems, too. There have been, yeah, there have been a lot of issues. Nothing like this. This mm-hmm. this is novel. In fact, in some ways, um, the last thing we're going to talk about, too, in, in our summer break here, uh, talking about the, the European trip that President Trump has just taken, there, there are a lot of things that have never happened before that are happening now. I don't want to lose sight of that. You are right to name um, that this is not entirely new, but there is a categorical difference um, in, in what's been unfolding. But to shift now. To shift now, let's talk a little bit about politics. And, and speaking of politics, let's talk about religious support for politics. You know, what I mean by that, and so let's let's just, by way of anecdote, talk about how this came up. And uh, our listeners may be familiar with a Trump political rally that took place in Helena, Montana, some weeks back. And uh, much to the surprise and, and scandal of lots and lots of people, both those who identify as Republican and those who identify as Democrat and those who don't identify with any political party. In the background, as is often the case at Trump's rallies, there are uh, stanchions set up where people are standing and you get you know people holding their Trump signs and they have their MAGA hats on and so forth. Well, there are these three priests in Roman collars in the background and, and people are like, what on earth is this? David, what on earth is this? Well, and they were not not just there attending in Roman collars, but according to the Montana standard, they were attending as VIPs. They were considered to be and were intended to be focal points for this march. So the the visual implication is that the Roman Catholic Church is behind the policies of Trump and the Roman Catholic Church wants to, for want of a better phrase, make America great again. And this creates not only a, a sort of existential problem for the church, it creates any number of legal problems for the church as well, because as a nonprofit charitable organization, churches are not supposed to be directly advocating for any political candidate. Now, granted, many religious organizations skirt that and make a gray area out of that, and the Catholic Church is among them. I mean, if we think about the history of the Catholic Church with regard to even the last four or five election cycles— we can see examples, and 
let me take two steps back and say that, you know, back in uh, back in 2009, 2010, when the Fortnights for Freedom were first beginning, as a professor of Catholic studies down in Memphis, I was invited to go and speak at a church. And I raised a lot of hackles when I talked about my political position because I was critical of the notion that somehow we needed to be defending religious freedom when we were in a church visibly, you know, able to be freely discussing these matters. But I don't want to take us off on a tangent, but just to say every religious organization in America should be aware that there are bright lines about how you are supposed to participate in direct endorsement. And many, many churches skirt along those bright lines. Yeah, and it's no secret that the the Trump administration's legal agenda has included trying to broaden that. And so I can't remember, there was a decision last year that was was made, and I don't know, I don't think it was a Supreme Court decision. I think it might have been an executive decision or, you know, an executive instruction that the Justice Department would not necessarily go after those who, is is that right? Yeah, there has not been a real or robust challenge to any nonprofit status because of political involvement. And in fact, our evangelical friends sometimes will talk about this as a strategy yeah. and will actually try and challenge the law. Let me let me just give a little bit more background. So this is from the Montana Standard a couple of weeks ago. Uh, David McCumber reporting uh, along with Thomas Plank on July 12th. They report the four priests who were seated near the front of the rally wore their clerical garb, carried Make America Great Again signs, and wore VIP badges. They clapped for Trump as he doubled down on his oft-repeated slur of Senator Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas mocked the Me Too movement, and questioned the meaning of former Republican President George H.W. Bush's Thousand Points of Light slogan. So clearly the Catholic Church is a big tent. We can find good and well-meaning Catholics across the political spectrum. I'm aware of that. But when we are looking at our religious leaders, and when particularly in light of what we were talking about just a few minutes ago about some of the policies that the Trump administration has enacted towards the least of these among us, it is troubling to see priests who would visibly ally themselves with Donald Trump in this particular political moment. Yeah, it is. You know, taking a step back, this is what led us to think about this particular issue. But, you know, I've often thought more generally, what is the place for not just Catholic religious leaders, but evangelical leaders, rabbis, uh, imams, and so forth, other kind of leaders of faith in political movements? I, I do think in the U.S., at least since the 80s, when there has been the so-called moral majority of Ronald Reagan, where there has been this kind of alignment of the GOP strategically with certain Christian groups, including a number of Catholic bishops, if not the USCCB more broadly— I think there has been something of a double standard. And you see this, for instance, in the the political pushback against people like Sister Simone Campbell and the Sisters organization, the lobbying group in Washington called uh, Network that works for social justice and peacemaking. And the, the nuns on the bus tour, you may recall, where they would go to different districts, including the district of Speaker of the House Paul Ryan in Wisconsin, and, and talk about the way that certain political choices and political policies have disadvantaged working people, people who are, you know, rely on unions and so forth, how it affects women and persons of color. And she was really demonized for that by a lot of people, including some within the church. I think back, I mean, this is not new in some ways. I think of somebody like Dorothy Day, who, you know, it's interesting how she gets kind of whitewashed by those who now see her as somebody to hold up, I think of 
people who admire, for instance, her position on abortion. You know, she was very, very clear about the, the, how wrong abortion was as a policy and so forth. And yet she also was somebody who was very anti-military. She was an, clearly a pacifist, somebody who talked about social justice issues, who talked about the rights of the poor, founded, of course, the Catholic Worker Houses of Hospitality and Farms. She was somebody who was, was really disparaged by a number of archbishops of New York over the years, including Cardinal Spellman. She was not somebody who you could easily kind of prop up as somebody fitting a Ronald Reagan GOP model of what the, quote, moral majority should look like. It's, there's a double standard here that, that's interesting. If, if, if four priests in Roman collars were to show up at a Bernie Sanders rally, what would the response be? I'm happy to see that there, there has been an, uh, quite a bit of pushback against these four priests, including by the, the diocesan administrator in Helena, Montana. They're currently without a bishop, but uh, the other bishop in Montana and, and others put out statements that condemn this, that they, that they do not represent the church. And, and I'm sure they've gotten a stern talking to it at the very least. Frankly, I think they've made fools of themselves precisely for the reasons that you've said, David, that regardless of one's political party, it's the policies that are at, at stake here, particularly, you know, people talk about Democrats and how there's a national platform that does not align comfortably with the Catholic social teaching. Case in point, the Democratic national platform's policy on abortion, for instance. And yet, you know, it's not like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that imagine priests standing behind a Democratic candidate or politician who was talking about abortion in, in such a way, and they were cheering and, and, and yelling. I mean, that's the equivalent, as far as I'm concerned, of what these priests did. You had President Trump up there defaming Me Too movement victims who has just, you know, overseen this child separation at the borders process, who's defended it at every turn, who's done a number of things, continually does a number of things that are absolutely abhorrent, that are morally corrupt, and, you know, including at times championing these things, as you read from the Montana newspaper, championing these things at this rally and these priests are cheering. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I, I guess maybe making fools of themselves is an understatement. Well, it's a complex thing for me on two points. One, I, I take very seriously the passage in canon law, and I'm not a canon lawyer, but the passage in canon law that says that we, we are to give to the baptized the benefit of their good name. The notion that, that we should impute the best possible motives to those who are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and should not immediately assume that just because they disagree with us politically, they somehow have lost their mark as a child of God and as, as a person who is genuinely in conscience trying to follow Christ. So I want to approach anyone with whom I disagree, particularly a baptized brother or sister, with charity. Certainly everyone deserves charity, but I especially want to lead with charity for those that are brothers and sisters in Christ and not assume or say, heaven forbid, they're not good Catholics or anything like that. I don't know the state of their souls. Also, this is problematic for me because I, in many ways, in my heart of hearts, like it when the church is political. I, you know, I cheer for the film Romero. You know, I like it when Oscar Romero stands up against an oppressive government. I like it when the U United States Conference on Catholic Bishops makes a bold pronouncement like they did in the 80s about economic justice for all. Or that they have with the child separation policy. Exactly. And so it, it's problematic for me because I also take very seriously the hierarchy of the church. And so I'm beholden to my bishops in the way that I'm not beholden to an individual priest. 
present company accepted, of course. Um, but I, and and certainly on this program, we dip our toe into politics, and we we definitely lay out on the table that we have certain positions and certain things that we'd like to see enacted in in our country politically. And so I, I recognize that it's in some ways the pot calling the kettle black for me to say, how dare these priests go out and be political? On the other hand, how dare these priests go out and be political well, in not, that way? No, but that's not yeah. – so this is okay. the issue, right? It's not about being political. Okay. Theology is political. Okay. Christianity is political. Jesus Christ was crucified as an enemy of the state in, mm-hmm. in the first century. Pope Francis has said in Laudato Si, he has said it in Evangelii Gaudium, he has said it, well, at least in those two places and in other addresses, that we are called to be engaged socially and politically as people of faith in dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so – you know, we look at the letter of James, you know, it's not enough just to profess your faith. You got to put this into works. You got to put it into action. We could look to uh, Jesus who says to his disciples, a lot of people say, Lord, Lord, they, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk of their faith. You use the example of Romero, soon to be St. Romero, and so many others. Uh, all of the Christian martyrs over the, the centuries are people who engage in political action, right? That is what we are called to do. So the issue with these four priests and others, but these four priests in Montana by way of example, isn't that they were engaging politically. We are called to be engaged politically. We're not called to you know, flee the world. We're called to not be part of the world, mm. right? We're to go into it, as Jesus says in John's gospel. The issue, again, isn't being political. The issue is what are they standing for? So if I may, my friend Walter Bergerman would say, you know, in the Old Testament, oftentimes Israel is given a choice. Are you going to serve Yahweh or are you going to serve Tiglath-Pileser, the pagan emperor? And in this particular case, if I'm following your logic, Israel is called to be political, but it's called to be political in the name of Yahweh and never in the name of Tiglath-Pileser. Yeah, I, I, it, well— in this sense, right? Well, it's complicated there. You in- invoked, you know, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. There are ways, too, that Isaiah and others point to pagan rulers who take over Israel as a sign of God's action in their turning away from the covenant. So that gets complicated. Sure. The real issue here for me is the test of what it is that we're supporting. You know, what is it that you are supporting? You know, I can think of an alignment. There, this, this is where I think of Pope Francis in the, in the role of dialogue, right? Dialogue with society, dialogue with politics. It is a dialogue. It's a conversation. There are ways in which we can support, and I think of the work of Network and Sister Simone Campbell and the Catholic Health Association and others around the Affordable Care Act, for instance. It was, was everything about that in perfect keeping with all of Catholic social teaching? The answer is No. But is there a way we can have a dialogue to support the greater good? And this brings me to the kind of central core here of Christian faith, which is the government, politics, the state, at every turn in Catholic social teaching is is clear. It serves one purpose. We see this in Gaudium et Spes as well, and something Pope Francis keeps reiterating, is that it serves the common good. For instance, the slogan, make America great again, does not serve the common good. That's a stupid little slogan, and it seems like a petty thing to pick on, but it just starts there and it escalates to child uh, migrant separation at the borders, the treatment of women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The consolidation of economic resources in the top 1% or the top 1% of 1% and the inability of decent, hardworking families to actually make a living or provide for themselves or have economic security. Yeah, or taking away people's access to health care, for instance, you know, in in the efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act and so on. All these things seem to me blatant attacks on the common good. 
the repeal of environmental stipulations through the EPA, a, a subject that as a Franciscan I know is near and dear to your heart. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And so we could see ways in which that's why I brought up the abortion, which is, you know, a hot potato and a, the abortion issue with the Democratic Party, because it's it's one thing to support a political party and to act politically. It's another thing to support policies that are blatantly in not in line with with the the Christian worldview, with the common good, with Catholic teaching, and the things that these priests uh, in Montana were seem, applauding for, were applauding for, and they're publicly supporting, were things that were antithetical to Catholic teaching, and and that's a problem. Yes, and so you know Oscar Romero gave his life to protest against governmental actions that were not in line with, with Catholic teaching, you know, and, and he's right. He, he says oftentimes in his homilies and his speeches, that is the late Oscar Romero, that he would be derided. He'd be called all sorts of things politically. He'd be called a communist, all these kinds of things. He shouldn't, you know, priests shouldn't be involved with politics and so on and so forth. But for him, it's, it's not the end isn't the politics. Politics, the polis, the way we govern ourselves, is the means toward the common good. How do we preserve that? That's the Catholic teaching. That's the Catholic approach. I love the way that you just clarified that, and that was helpful to me in this conversation to get there. Let's take this now from a domestic conversation to an international conversation, because you know the Catholic Church is not an American church. The Catholic Church is truly the international church. And we have now uh, an example of Donald Trump going out to literally not just one ally, but our entire cordon of allies through the Northern Atlantic Treaty Association, NATO, and basically giving them the finger. I mean, it kind of (laughs) seemed like that was what happened. And then going to Vladimir Putin and uh, the Helsinki Accords and having a conversation with Vladimir Putin, which on one day sounded as if it was buddy-buddy with Putin and very much against the intelligence operations of the United States. And then as soon as Donald Trump gets back stateside, he's literally reversed what he just said. And a well, wood became sort a wood of. and all of that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very yeah. tricky. But Well, it's, it's very I, – I, I hate to be so flip. It's very stupid. You know, to, to quote Stephen Colbert, a good Catholic himself, the late-night host, he, you know, he said last night in his monologue, he's like, how stupid – Let's just take Donald Trump on his word with this flip thing about would or wouldn't, this, 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 his misspeaking, allegedly. Colbert said, you know, how stupid does he think the American people are? He was very clear, and it's, and it's the context, right? It doesn't take much to see. If you listen to his responses at that press conference, that doesn't make any sense. He didn't mean to say wouldn't in a double negative sort of bizarre thing. This is a, just a weird poor kind of cover-up, and, and I don't think anyone is fooled. This is also the man, though, that said that he could put a bullet in someone's head on Fifth Avenue and not be prosecuted. So in terms of the P.T. Barnum levels of, you know, never underestimating the stupidity of the American people, this guy is kind of Barnum squared in that sense. I mean, he's doubling down on the notion that he can literally say or do anything and get away with it. No, according to the polls, you know, on any given day, 30 to 40 percent of the American electorate it seems to be supportive. They're buying their tickets to the circus. I don't even need the polls. I can just talk to people in my family and see that the the it's working. Yeah. You know, the, there is a belief that somehow this is all part of a, a, a masterful game of chess to expose the deep state, to bring out and show the people in the swamp for what they are. And that Donald Trump, I mean, there are people who are cheering for Trump doing things like this because they think that it's all part of a master plan. Yeah. Well, it may be part of a master plan, but it's not a good one. To the point about the European tour, I mean, we kind of jumped ahead here. 
I mean, there's a pattern that has unfolded in President Trump's behavior vis-a-vis the world stage. And so we saw this when the G7 met in Canada, comments that were made about Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, and about our allies at that point. This was earlier in the summer. I want to say this was mid-June, around mid-June. And then President Trump gets on a plane and flies to Korea and says wonderfully positive things about a dictator who is guilty of extraordinary human rights violations. Similarly, we have this visit, kind of a disaster trip to the United Kingdom, embarrassing uh, Prime Minister Theresa May on her home turf. There was enormous protests around the Houses of Parliament and throughout the city of London. The people of England were, were not happy to have the sitting president of the United States visit. He then goes to the NATO meeting where he reads, if he gives the middle finger, he does so proverbially, as you say, in terms of chastising the members of, of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization for, I guess, not contributing as much as the U.S. The only component one can look to in terms of a reasonable assertion there is that the agreement is that all NATO members need to contribute internally to their national budgets, 2% of their national budgets for military spending. And so, but the way that he talks about it, it's clear, as, as other commentators and, and journalists have pointed out, it, it's clear that President Trump does not understand what NATO is and how it works. He talks at times as if NATO is Mar-a-Lago, that one has to give dues or pay a certain amount and that some nations are only paying, you know, $100 and other nations are paying $200,000. That's not how it works. So that's that's really important. What's scary about it is, again, there's there's a layer of hypocrisy, surprise, surprise here, because one of the things that President Trump has kind of treated in a very flip way is uh, so-called Article 5 of the NATO agreement, which says that if any one of the NATO members is attacked, it's an attack upon all of those in the, in the treaty. The only time that that has ever been invoked in the roughly 50 years or so that NATO has been around is when the United States was attacked on September 11, 2001. And the NATO members, places like France and Great Britain and Germany and others, uh, you know, the Netherlands and so forth, contributed military support in the invasion of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. We realize in retrospect how horrible that is for so many, many reasons. But the truth is we are the beneficiaries so far, the only ones of that. And now we're the ones, uh, as it were, going over and harassing, I guess is a good word, uh, these these allies of ours. And then, as you rightly point out, we have that same pattern of that kind of, you know, bad talking Canada going to South Korea and praising a dictator. You get the same sort of thing in an extraordinary way that has left everybody, including myself, flabbergasted that after this kind of disastrous NATO meeting to go to Helsinki in Finland and meet with President Vladimir Putin and then in, in a press conference take President Putin in the, in the Russian Federation side in this situation uh, about in, engaging or, um, you know, affecting and sabotaging, attempting to sabotage the U.S. political election in 2016. It's completely crazy. Given the most charitable possible reading, one could see... That, I thought that was. Well, <laughs> trying to grant even more charity to this moment, one could say that, that maybe this is a wrong-headed attempt to love one's enemies. Um, and and that the expression of love is is just ill placed. But but let me let me take a more serious step back from that and and contextualize what you just said. Clearly, we live in a realistic world where there are enemies and there are allies. And unfortunately, until Christ returns, that may be the reality that we live with. Nevertheless, there is not one square inch of earth that is not part of a diocese. 
And there is no country on earth that does not have brothers and sisters in Christ, and particularly Catholics. So we need to be aware that any time that we're drawing these lines of us versus them, we're drawing lines against fellows in Christ. And that that, that is problematic from a Christian standpoint. It's problematic from a Catholic standpoint. The Catechism and other documents recognize the need for borders, and they recognize the need for the, the necessity sometimes of alliances, and that those alliances will be against others. Nevertheless, what is happening right now, particularly with NATO, with these long-term relationships, these relationships are familial, they're economic, they are political, and to treat them as if they can just be thrown overboard for the sake of I don't know what, for a better deal, I don't even know what that would mean in this particular context. The bull in the china shop is, is not even a strong enough notion of this in terms of the destruction that is being wrought basically every time this man travels and opens his mouth. And uh, for me, like you, I'm flabbergasted, but I'm flabbergasted especially not just that Trump is doing it, but that there are Republicans who I grew up in the 80s and I was a Republican and I understand the rhetoric of the Soviet Union was the enemy and the alliances that we have, our word is our bond and that we, uh, all of these things were there. And it's like these old men who I know lived through the same history and the same republicanism that I lived through have forgotten all that or are willing for some, I don't even know what quid pro quo, to ignore it now or to pretend like it's, it's, it's not just the reversal of would and wouldn't that flabbergasts me. It's the reversal of longtime conservatives who say this is the way that our worldview has always been, who have now in a 1984 sort of sense, yes is no, enemies are friends – Loving big brother. Yeah, exactly. It just, it, it, it just seems, it seems so incongruous to me that these people that talked so much in my childhood about objective reality have abandoned it. Are you talking about elected officials? Or are you talking about just sort of like the run of the mill? Up and down. Uh, not just elected officials, but also commentators. And, and among my, my friends who are still, you know, who still identify strongly as conservative, some of them are horrified. But I also, in my family and outside of my family, have those who are either cheering secretly or, or overtly at this moment. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, the, the, I'm just at a loss for words because I, I, I think your point about, you know, where is the, we might call it a collective conscience as well as individual consciences, you know, where where is that? Um, and, and I think it follows from our, our earlier conversation just a moment ago about um, religious engagement or support for, you know, politicians or politics in general. And that's where, what are the issues that we're supporting here? I mean, your point about viewing a, a more inclusive, capacious sense of the human family and not being so concerned about the borders and so forth. I think that's an important thing. And yet there are these efforts, you know, it was in the wake of the Second World War that you have things like the United Nations and then later NATO and during the Cold War as an effort for people to support one another when there were threats on one's horizon. And again, you see the current political rhetoric centering on this America first model. The isolationist model. The isolationist model. And this is not the first time we've gone down this road. I mean, think of, and people will bring this up, think of Ambassador Powers talks about this in terms of the mistakes that we made 
during the Clinton administration with Rwanda, the mistakes that were made. And when I say we, I mean both the United States and the international community. We could think of the same sort of thing in the early 20th century um, with the various world wars. It wasn't until we, and this is a very selfish approach, let's be honest about it. It wasn't until we were attacked by the Japanese that we finally got involved. And that's shameful. And there are a lot of other shameful things that happened around that time. But in the meantime, millions and millions of people were dying and being executed and genocide was was uh, unfolding and we did nothing. So I really appreciate your point about you know, the, the sense of solidarity, which is a key component of, of Catholic Christianity, right, of Christianity writ large, that we're supposed to understand ourselves as part of a bigger family. You know, you talk about the family of the baptized, that's important, but what's even more important is, is, is the human family, or as, you know, we Franciscans would say, you know, the, the family of creation, which involves, as Pope Francis says, this integral ecology. We're all connected in ways that we don't always see, that we don't always understand, uh, and we have an obligation to care for one another. But there are also, you know, how do we organize the polis, going back to the meaning of politics again? You know, how do we structure this? And it's not just a, our side versus their side and let's all get along and let's play nice with one another with regard to Trump and Putin. The, the Russian Federation, under the leadership of President Putin, have been doing some really, really egregious things, including at home and the domestic side, you know, the arresting and the, so the imprisonment or the torture, the the murder, the assassination of journalists, of protesters, of political minority groups. Uh, we see what has happened in the United Kingdom with Russian spies murdering people with poison. We've seen the annexation of Crimea Something as simple as sporting events, you know, there was quite a, quite an extensive series of reports about how Russia ended up with this year's FIFA World Cup. This is not to be overlooked. And I think that when, when we focus again on the policies and engaging our Christian faith, focus on the common good, focus on the solidarity of, of human persons, we have to call to account this sort of injustice. Dan, I have missed so much talking to you, and I'm just thankful to have a chance to catch up with you midsummer. and I cannot, cannot wait for our season to start back in the fall. Likewise, David. Always a pleasure, and our listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> All right, so this has been The Francis Effect, and I'm not going to do the full credits, but I will say that we have our space and we can do this through the good offices of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, housed here at Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They are not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org and lstc.edu. We'll be back in the fall, and for our Patreon supporters, we're going to have a little bit of an extra extra for you around this episode as well, so tune in for that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We miss you, and we cannot wait to be back with you in a couple of months.